This is The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth. Good morning and welcome to The Weekender on Y95, brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center. I'm Kevin Northup. The Weekender for Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Coming up this hour, a recap of the community conversation on healthcare in Nova Scotia session from earlier this week. It was held at the Rod Grant Hotel in Yarmouth on Wednesday. Issues such as ER wait times, mental health, COVID mandates, and more were brought forward to Health Minister Michelle Thompson and other health leaders. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. A chance for people in Yarmouth to speak out about health care in Nova Scotia. Dozens had a question and answer session with health leaders Wednesday at the Rod Grant Hotel, including Health Minister Michelle Thompson. She was joined by Karen Oldfield, CEO of Nova Scotia Health, and Deputy Minister Janine Lagasse. It was part of a series of discussions across the province. It came just hours after Thompson announced sweeping changes to emergency department waiting areas in light of two Nova Scotians that lost their lives while waiting for care. Nurse practitioners assigned to emergency rooms along with patient advocates to check in on people waiting to be seen. More virtual care coming as well and ensuring patients coming in by ambulance are admitted faster. This morning, we'll recap the session on Wednesday. It started with Tanya Nixon, Western Zone Vice President of Operations for Nova Scotia Health have heard and have visited our mobile primary health care units. Uh, we are trying to increase the department here. We've looked for ways to increase primary care access. Uh, I know many of you have heard and have visited our mobile primary health care units. Uh, we are trying to increase primary care clinic uh, access here as well. And uh, we have a uh, very comprehensive access proposal um, that has been drafted, has been uh, presented, and we're really excited that we hope to be making an upcoming announcement uh, that includes us partnering with community providers, uh, Dow family residency providers, as well as our acute care providers in the uh, hospital. The other thing that I would say is uh, in rural parts of uh, Nova Scotia, emergency health services has been uh, incredibly important. Uh, we've been working really hard with our colleagues at Department of Health and Wellness and uh, EMCI EHS. I know we have colleagues here in the room today. Um, we have added non-urgent uh, transportation options uh, in the system. That really has enabled us to free up emergency access for people who need really acute medical transportation when they need it. Uh, I do want to acknowledge, in addition to my colleagues here at the front, we have a number of providers around the room today, continuing care, mental health, primary health care. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, they all have a wealth of information, uh, service uh, details. If you or, and or a loved one are looking to access service, please don't hesitate to reach out and ask some questions. We do have someone here who can help us with accessing virtual care. If you do not have a provider, and you are waiting to gain access to a provider, virtual care is one of uh, a number of options for you. And we do have someone here who can help you with that today. Lastly, before I introduce my colleagues, we really have tried to um, increase the ability to have local decision makers who are working with staff and people like yourself to make decisions. Uh, so uh, about a year and a half ago, we um, made the decision to have uh, Tracy Watkins Allen um, become the site lead here in uh, the zone. Tracy supports the team, uh, both the frontline staff, the volunteers, the physician providers, uh, and is the liaison with the community agencies. She was joined by other staff members who also shed light on the work being done in the Yarmouth area. The virtual emergency and our emergency department, we are able to see lower acuity patients um, during the day, so that does help decrease the wait times in the emergency department. Uh, the virtual care, which there is somebody here um, with Joanne's team to be able to help um, people who are unattached, don't have a primary care provider to be able to access that care for free, the, the virtual Maple platform. Um, primary care mobile units, which we have one coming um, this weekend actually in Yarmouth at Harbor South. So just if you're looking for a prescription refill or those sorts of things, um, great opportunity. Um, we have looked at allocating a surgical bed so that we can provide care for those needing elective surgery. Um, during COVID, um, just due to occupancy rates, 
we were prioritizing those urgent cares cases, cancers, those sorts of things, but now we're trying to work through the backlog of elective cases. Um, they talked about the GP anesthesia program, which is phenomenal. Um, like I said, I work with the foundation and their support is very much appreciated. Um, they provide equipment regularly each year um, that we probably wouldn't be able to procure uh, without their support and the generous donations of you guys in the communities, that's appreciated. Um, we have partnered with School of Nursing to kind of look at how can we retain some of the nurses that are at the school that's practically right in our parking lot. So looking at you know rural nursing bursaries as well as we've implemented an undergraduate um, student nurse role. So students that are in the program, um, while they're studying, they can also work casually, um, which gives them clinical experience plus employment um, while they're doing their studies. Because of uh, significant deficits within our nursing program, we have our nursing portfolio, we have utilized uh, travel nurses. So we have been working with a significant amount of travel uh, companies to make sure that we have the nurses that we need to be able to provide the care and we've also had to look at due to and I know public tableau is out there if you look at the data um, our acute occupancy rate is around 130 percent so if you visit the hospital you will see people uh, potentially in hallways and unconventional spaces but it's us meeting the, need, the needs of the community I saw Bob was over there, so we do work with our partners in continuing care to make sure that people are aware of resources available out in the community to hopefully keep them at home longer so that they don't need to come in hospital um, and wait for long-term care placements. We want to keep people home, make sure that they have the resources that they need um, so that people are getting the care they need in the right, by the right provider and in the right space. I will say that I have had many opportunities to practice obstetrics in Yarmouth. It's a wonderful community. We have done a significant amount of work to ensure that your patients, obstetrical and gynecological, do not need to travel for care from this area. Uh, it's been uh, very challenging from a resource point of view, but we've uh, done, a, I think, a good job so far. My job is the Western Zone Medical Executive Director, so I am uh, part of Tanya and Allison's team, and basically we liaise with Dalhousie, Department of Health and Wellness, and um, the uh, other partners, including community partners, to ensure that we provide uh, the clinical care to you that's required. A couple of initiatives that Tanya didn't mention that I'm just gonna highlight for brevity. Um, I would like to identify that we have a physician recruitment uh, team member, Dr. Michelle Dow, who's actually local to uh, this area. She's an excellent addition to the team. She has um, been um, identified as somebody who will help, help us to bring some family practitioners to the uh, area, Southwest Nova, and we're really hopeful that uh, she will be able to uh, add to the team. The other initiative I'd like to bring to your attention is the Family Practice Anesthesia Initiative. The um, Yarmouth area has been challenged significantly with respect to our ability to address surgical strategy initiatives, and we have um, difficulty with retention of anesthetists in this area. So it's a pilot which we've started. It will begin in March of this year. We have um, two individuals who actually have local ties to the area. We're very hopeful that this will be a positive initiative and that uh, it will be something we'll be able to maintain the surgical access for you as patients who require care. Then it was turned over to the public. COVID mandates for unvaccinated healthcare workers was the first topic brought forward. Those who take comfort in shots and boosters should be free to do so without fear of retribution. But those who feel that their health or their soul is better served without it should also be fear of retribution. This is a highly personal matter and should be this should be recognized by our bureaucracy. Again, I say hearing over listening. There's no shame in admitting you were deceived by the WHO, the UN, the illustrious Dr. Fauci. It was confusing and frightening time for all of us. Our health overseers definitely tried to do what was best for the people of Nova Scotia. And it may be time to admit that not all the information you were operating on was accurate. Not all of it was presented with honesty and care. Heaven knows this is a small province with limited resources. You needed outside help with the research and you needed outside advice. But now you have your own data to work with. I would ask that you listen to the real facts that are now showing the truth about both this virus and this injection that's being pushed. Thank you. We have some unbelievable nurses 
and this problem is enormous, enormous in this area. And we've lost a lot of them, and that's a shame. I do want to um, thank you for the comment and the, the way that you expressed it, extremely empathetic and knowledgeable and obviously from the number of claps, a, a very heartfelt and important issue in Yarmouth. The, um, I'm just giving you the NSH numbers, so I can't talk beyond NSH, but I can tell you that there are 128 of 26,000 healthcare workers who work for NSH who are not vaccinated at this time. Okay? 128. Now, so our decision all along has been that um, vaccination would be required for those who work in high risk settings and that does include hospitals but also other high-risk areas such as long-term care it's a very polarizing issue here and in other parts of the of the province so um, we are the decision is is not uh, being revisited at this time however there's always tomorrow and there's always the day after. So that's not perhaps the answer you want to hear, but at this point in time, that is the, that's the policy and that's where we are. And it's, so, you know, I, I appreciate the sentiments and I do hear you and we will take this back, and we do after pretty much every meeting. So I will never say never, but today it is not uh, a change in our policies. First off, I am one of those nurses that is not vaccinated, and that has lost my job in this province that I've worked very hard for, and have a $60,000 student loan to boot. I have my personal reasons for why I do not want this vaccine, which should be a choice, and my own personal convictions. I've been told from my employer that I don't have the right to my conscience, to my religion, to my creed. What? I don't care what they say. Now, Michelle Thompson is here. I've wrote several emails. My mother, a veteran nurse RN for 47 years who also walked in the mandates. We get the same automated response back signed by your assistant and our questions are never addressed. One, why, Where, what is the scientific evidence that you're not allowing us back to work? Every other province in this country has allowed their unvaccinated healthcare workers back to work. Number two, the vaccine has proven it is ineffective at transmission. We've seen that. One week we had 800 healthcare workers off with COVID. I can pull up your very own provincial statistics today that over 82% of hospital COVID hospitalizations and deaths are in the vaccinated. I can give you exact numbers from the government's own webpage, okay? How long do you plan on leaving us on unpaid leave? How long? How long do I have to continue to suffer? This has been the worst year of my life. I have lost everything because of your draconian unethical and ineffective mandates that do nothing to mitigate transmission of COVID. The proof is there. All the proof is there. So I can answer um, again. I appreciate that this is a very divisive uh, conversation and I can feel it in the room. And I appreciate your comments. I, I'm not in a position to argue science here today. I, 
Because there is no science. So, uh-huh. so we're not. You ready. can kick me out if you want. I've already lost everything because of you guys. Everything, and my health has suffered as a result. So this is not something. This is righteous anger. Is what you're seeing here right now today. Okay. So we're probably not going to solve this here today, and well, uh, this is a conversation. Okay, well, I would like I would like the question answered. Why are we not allowed back when every other province is allowed back? I won't be answering that question today. There you go. The science. What is the science behind it? When, when it's been proven that this vaccine does not mitigate the spread of COVID, it does nothing to stop the transmission of COVID. Your very own statistics want me to get them up here right now on the provincial so government. We're, we're going to move on. I'm not going to answer that question here today. And that's what that's what you get here, folks. So I, that's what you get. But Stay get, away from the boosters. We are seeing the side effects. You can shake your head all you want. This is what we're seeing. Yeah. So we we I I know people who have lost loved ones. I will not stop speaking up, and I have been listening to the doctors and the scientists that have been speaking up, not to the ones that are bought out in toting this narrative of control. And I'm going to say thank you for your comments, and we're going to go on to another topic. And I would, again, just it's exactly I, I, I what I expected. No answer. I appreciate no because they don't have an answer. And and there's and there's and clearly a lot of uh, passion in the in the room around this. And I and I think that it's we probably won't get to do an answer today. So I'm hoping if you've got a question that's maybe on a different subject line, if you would like to put your hand up. More coming next from the meeting in Yarmouth on Wednesday, including discussions on mental health initiatives. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. We continue to look back at last Wednesday's community conversation on healthcare in Yarmouth. A big discussion point was around a lack of mental health support in rural areas. This mother detailed a heartbreaking reality with the loss of her son. I think he was December 23rd, for less than 24 hours, not diagnosed, medicated, and no follow-up. I couldn't get the family doctor to follow them up. Our mental health care needs to be in the community, and we need a mental walk-out walk-in clinic like you have in Halifax and Cape Breton. And why is there West Nova Scotia always the last to get in? like all, like my, like the, the doctors were given money not to see their, their patients. They got in like $110,000. My son died because he never accessed an appointment. Have you ever had to go and take your child and do CPR on them? That's what I had to do, me and me, his father. That we have to live every day of our life missing him and knowing that he didn't get the care that he needed. Mental health is true. You fellas have not said anything about mental health. We need mental health in the community and we need peer support. It can be any way that it can be done, but it needs to be done. And if we had that address, we'd have less, we would have less drug addiction because that's probably true. First, I'm very sorry to, to hear your story, and I absolutely applaud your courage for standing up and telling us today, because that takes a lot, a lot of I'm courage to do that in this forum. No. I'm not ashamed of what he did. I'm ashamed of the healthcare he got. Absolutely, absolutely, but I, I do. I want to applaud your courage for telling that story today, because I, I'm, I'm not sure that I, I could do that. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. You're absolutely right that we need to deliver mental health uh, services in a different way. Uh, we do have now uh, one of Minister Thompson's colleagues, Minister Brian Comer, is a min the Minister just of Addictions and Mental Health. That's solely what his responsibility is. And one of the things that he's been mandated to do is look exactly at this issue of how we provide services in a universal way. So we've tended to think about mental health care as inpatient, psychiatric, 
kind of higher levels of care that we need. And sometimes people do need that care. And when they do need it, it does need to be ready and responsive for them. But there are also lots of things that we can do in the community with our community-based organizations, with organizations that are already in existence. So we're doing a number of pilot projects right now that are starting exactly for that. So that when people perhaps you know, as they start out, if they're struggling a bit and, and need some help, to your point, there's peer support or there's social workers available or there's other clinicians who are available so that hopefully that it doesn't progress to a place where they need to get more psychiatric or hospital care. So you're absolutely right. We are looking at, and so we want people to understand universal mental health care is about a whole continuum of care from the very early stages until to very acute illness. And it makes me very angry um, when I see depression is treatable, when you haven't got people, when you haven't got the doctors on board. A local youth worker was next to share her experience in trying to find help for one of her clients. Uh, a glaring gap I want to highlight today, which we have been dealing with a very complex case since October of last year. Uh, nowhere in the province except for the AIS program at the IWK accepts anyone for inpatient mental health care under the age of 19. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to cry. Because this youth that I'm specifically thinking of, a 17-year-old, because they don't have a permanent address, they can't be admitted to that program. There's nothing else. They can't come back to shift because we can't help them. They don't fit our mandate because they're addicted to drugs and they have many other mental health issues. My question is, is this even on anyone's radar, this glaring systemic issue? This youth is 17 years old, living on the streets of Halifax right now. So I just want to know if anyone's thinking about inpatient services for homeless youth under 19. So I'll, I'll start. Um, it is on our, I'm just worried, that it is on our radar, absolutely. We're working across government and there's a number of things. So I, we work very closely um, with uh, Minister McFarlane, who uh, is the Minister of uh, Homelessness and Minister John Lorne, who's the Minister of Housing, to your point, looking at supportive housing models. Um, and trying to and supportive housing meaning not just the structure, not just the place for someone to live, but actually wraparound supports for individuals living with addictions and mental health issues, relationship issues and family where it really isn't safe for them to be home and how do we navigate with them. There's a there's a ton more work to do, absolutely, but there has been some early successes. There's also some work happening across departments um, up with anti-poverty work. So really looking at the determinants of health and how do we support folks? Because really, sometimes I say I'm the minister of the healthcare system and all of my colleagues are the minister of health, right? Around education and uh, economic development and, and you know all of the different departments is a piece of health. And so we are working, we know that homelessness is uh, significant and it's not, a, not just a city problem. We know that rural communities are struggling as well. So there's been some grant funding that's happened. We are trying to lean in. It would be great to speak with you and see if you're connected with the people that may be able to support the work that you do because I think there is opportunity and um, you know, we, we want to continue, but Jenny, there may be more. The mental health of burned out healthcare workers was also brought forward. Uh, mental health, but a slightly different perspective on it. Um, how do you specifically intend to address mental health care for our providers to help reduce burnout and stress relief and career changes because of it? Well, that's a great question. And, uh, and I'll tell you that our minister is very much, uh, this is on her radar, so you, you start and we'll chime in. Yeah, so I, I think there's a number of things. I think, you know, when we look at um, there's a, there's a couple things I think about. I worry about, we think about those, those very stressful uh, events that happen and how we deal with that as a team, right? So if there is something that's happened, a significant critical illness or a critical accident or something like that. So making sure that we have um, access to people to debrief in those situations and, and very clear access to, for, for psychological support in order to process and digest what people have been through because it can be very traumatic. There's also the day-to-day -day grind of it all. There's the, the pressure at work. Um, you know, we all have a lot of pressure in our personal lives as well now. And so we do have some programs like EAP 
Uh, we do have uh, programs through professional associations. So as an example, Doctors Nova Scotia spoke about a program um, that they currently are working uh, through with physicians called Bring Back the Joy to Medicine. So looking at resiliency. Um, for us as employer, or as the employer, looking at the things that really grind folks, so giving people agency over their work life as much as possible, supporting them, I don't think there's one thing. Um, so peer support, making sure there's EAP, looking at wellness activities. Um, we know that work-life balance is really difficult for people in healthcare right now. We need, uh, we don't, we have a number of vacancies across the province because of the workforce shortages, which means that healthcare workers don't get the rest that they need and deserve. And we're aware of that. Um, and that's, you know, where travel nurses can be a double-edged sword. We bring them in in order to make sure that our shifts are fully staffed and that the staff are supported or that they can get a break. But it's also difficult to see somebody that's not from your community that's getting paid a different rate for working alongside of you. So we, we hold that uh, with both intentions, working with unions as well to understand. So. There's a variety of options and, re um, and really trying to support people if they do have to go off, but ideally we would be looking at prevention. So I think we need to go right back to the um, education and talking to people about resiliency and self-care and how we build that into our education programs for, for staff as well. And uh, you know, I worry about all healthcare professionals. I worry uh, not just, you know, it, it takes a lot to care. We carry patients with us uh, our whole life. Uh, and then I'm reminded that some of our patients carry us with them their whole life as well. So it's, uh, I think there's a lot more that we can do, but it is on our radar and we worry about the people a lot. We worry and we hear directly from them. Next, the focus went to the emergency room, not just in Yarmouth, but across the province. One woman detailed her poor experience in the ER here with people walking out before they could be seen and also asked about a redevelopment of the Yarmouth emergency room, which was announced in 2020. So am I greatly disappointed? Yes, I am. But I didn't expect this. I didn't expect you to sit there and say, oh yeah, by the way, in February, this is coming or we're down the line, this is coming. We're working on getting nurses or to have someone retired stand up and say, hey, I'll go back. I'm a veterinary technologist. I could go back. <laughs> yeah, this this is very, very sad for our community. I have a friend who's waiting waiting for a hip replacement. Three years. So thank you for sharing your experience and my apologies for it being no, so, no so negative. There are no more apologies no. not seeing what there were people that were actually leaving that were probably worse condition than me because they just couldn't wait anymore. And for, for, for me to hear, oh, there's no doctors here. So to update your question on the redevelopment, I can tell you, and I'm gonna look at Tracy, so she'll confirm with a nod. So we have been working on the redevelopment. So the funding that you describe yes. that Yarmouth received, there has been a team of both operational and clinical leaders that have been working really hard together with redevelopment staff and the conceptual design for the new space is complete. It has been submitted for review and approval for the next phase. So the site is not only very committed to improving the, the Yarmouth ED. Do you have a date? A date. I need a date. Yep. I don't know, oh, this is happening and we've done this and we had a team do this. We need a date. Yeah, so maybe what we'll do is we'll take your name and telephone number. Uh, no, you need to let anybody know because would like to know. So maybe what we'll do is we'll post online where the questions and answers are, uh, what the timeline is. Uh, Tracy can speak to the nuances of the date. She's leading, uh, co-leading the team here, but we can provide you some details for certain. So the schematic design is going back to government probably April 1st, and it'll have to go to the registry then to look to get funding for the actual build piece. Um, but we have engaged teams, um, Paul Legier, who's the physician uh, lead, as well as some nurses. We actually toured some EDs around the province to make sure that we looked at what are gonna be our needs for the next 10, 20 years from an emergency department point of view to plan appropriately and to make sure that we're, um, you know, thinking ahead so that we can provide the care that's necessary down the road. So in April, it should go back to government for consideration. So when is it, well, wait a minute, we were told about this emergency and the money before COVID. So the money was for the functional design and a schematic design, it wasn't for a build. Um, so there, there's different well, phases. I think it was misleading to the public then, because we're all waiting. 
When we know more, we'll certainly share more. And uh, what we do know now, we'll make sure is uh, communicated in the Q&As on the website for certain. The conversation about ERs continued. But my question is, what's going on with the ER? With all the brains that I saw here today, to me, somebody is missing the boat somewhere because the ER... There's a lot of people that don't have any doctors. They have to sit at the ER and take the patient. The time and the patient of a nurse practitioner, a doctor, why don't you have a nurse practitioner trained in this field to go in the lobby of of the hospital one day a week to eliminate the uh, impact of people in the ER. To me, that's not a big brainer. Why can't the Department of Health do something more sensible? We are. (laughs) I'd like to see it. No, we'd like to see it too. So um, we did have a big announcement about some ER improvements today. So you're right. there's a couple things there. We absolutely want to include nurse practitioners and also in some ERs, we can also include physician assistants. And what we know from the data, and, and certainly Karen's welcome to correct me, is that around 60% of the patients that are seen in the emergency room could actually be seen um, by a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. So we do have some significant workforce issues. In order to be a nurse practitioner, you have to be a registered nurse first and then you take on training. So we do support uh, registered nurses in the province to bridge and become nurse practitioners, uh, but we do have a, an absolute shortage. One of the things that, um, that has recently happened, I, I think it was the spring legislature, we actually allow uh, nurse practitioners to admit to hospitals. We're only one of, the, one of the only jurisdictions in Canada that allow nurse practitioners to do that. I see lots of excellent brain here, lots of excellent plans, um, follow through being the crucial thing. I am a retired nurse, so I have spent many, many years listening to plans and not seeing the follow through. So that is the important thing is not the talk, but the action. Um, my question is about, um, I just read it this morning actually about the patient advocates and the care providers in the emergency departments. Um, so just a little more information about that role and you know what qualifications, etc. Um, I see a perfect opportunity. As I said, I'm a retired nurse, <laughs> but you know, I'm reconsidering that. But I I don't want to do those twelve hour shifts and the night shifts and etc. I've been there, done it, put in my share of my years. And um, I heard a song on the way here today, and the title of the song was Somebody, Someone. So in those emerge departments, everybody is somebody, someone. Yes. And so I think that if you, um, we can't, it, it's a huge piece to fix the system. We all know that. COVID exposed a system that was already practically in the toilet. So we can't fix it. and. In, in a short period of time, but I think being able to share information with those patients that are waiting, so those few staff that are in the background trying to care for them, they want to take that time to make the, to have those explanations. They don't have the time to do that. And so if you have those kind of people that have can provide that, I think it just helps everybody cope a little bit better. Exactly. And I'm available. So, so two two parts. Um, so, so before we came here, uh, we were we participated in um, an announcement this morning of the deputy and two two others uh, did a technical briefing, and the minister and myself uh, had the pleasure of doing the media and. Um, we should really talk about it because there were some bits that pertain specifically to yarn, like the fixed wing. I'm going to let you talk to that. So the question dealing with the um, weight room care provider, clinical, and the patient advocate, comfort. So I'll speak to that first. Uh, 
So we, we've had in the province, you know, a volunteer program for many years. It, it, it uh, manifests in different ways depending on where you are or what, what uh, site and so on and so forth. So uh, it went away during COVID, very unhelpful. Um, started to come back in October, our, our volunteer patient advocate, volunteers in the waiting room. But we need to take that to a whole different level. So I'm calling it professionalize our patient advocate. They could be volunteers, but they may not be. They, they could end up being paid physicians. We want somebody in the waiting rooms focused on people's comfort. So it's water, it's a blanket, exactly. We, we want to look at you and see you and help you. You're there, you don't feel well to begin with, more than likely. So, you know, I, I was in the, um, I'm gonna come back to the specific answer, but it's such a good example. I took a little time on Saturday night and just went through the um, emerges in Halifax. Uh, I went to the HI, I went to the Dartmouth General, I went to the Cobbequid. I live in Halifax, those are the three I went to. And there was a young fellow in the emergency at the Halifax Infirmary, and he was running. He was getting water, he was getting blankets, he was, can I help you, how can I help you? And um, I, ha I asked him to have a moment, and, and he was a first year student at Dalhousie University, and he was doing a four hour volunteer shift. And he said, you know, that man, he just went down to the vending machine and he spent three bucks on water, and I have water, I have water. So what I'm gonna do, Karen, I'm gonna go make a sign now that says what I have and what I do. Okay, but like, good for him. But he shouldn't have to do that. We should be doing that. And he, and he, all of that should be on a, on a piece of paper, on a, on a chart that says, here's what's available. Here's what our patient advocate can do. And not only that, by the time we're done with this, they'll have an iPad that can tell you your approximate wait time is whatever, X. So, you know, that's not going to happen as of Saturday, the iPad, but the people will be in the waiting rooms this weekend. So, so that's on the care and comfort. Um, they're not clinicians. They will not diagnose, they won't do vitals, none of that. So then we come to the second component, which is the um, waiting room care provider. And, and uh, that will be a clinical person. And they're, they're, they are part of the care team part of the team working in the eMERGE, but their specific role is to ensure that there's assessment, reassessment, making sure that from a purely clinical perspective that there is line of sight to people in that waiting room. So that, those are the, the two uh, components. I don't know if you wanted to add anything else. So, so basically what we announced today was that's happening now. Coming up, more from the meeting in Yarmouth on healthcare, and we'll hear from the leaders. The Weekender returns in a moment on Y95. Welcome back to The Weekender on Y95. I'm Kevin Northup. We continue our look at last Wednesday's community conversation on healthcare in Yarmouth. ERs, mental health, and COVID mandates were discussed. A local chiropractor had a question for the health leaders. My question is, when will the rules change? to allow um, the same policies in, uh, in the rest of the province that exist in the HRM regarding chiropractors being able to requisition x-rays. Should I elaborate on why that's important? Well, you can, but I can give you an update if you'd like. Please. Okay. So we recently met with the Chiropractor Association um, and uh, I know that to your point, HRM have been allowed and there have been other chiropractors in small pockets across the province uh, who've been able to order x-rays. And so actually we are working uh, right now with them in order to enable chiropractors across the province to order x-rays. There'll be some work around um, order entry and, and making sure that you can get the results that you require as well through the share process. But that is actively happening between the Department of Health and the association uh, right now. Why are you dragging your feet on this? Why is that happening like today? Well, it, it, it is happening and they could be talking about it today, but I know that we had a meeting in the last couple of weeks and, and they've committed to work together and we're going to get uh, 
we're going to get back together to find the update. So we do have an MLA who's a chiropractor, and he's quite uh, engaged in the conversation as well. And so that is... Oh, I, I'm happy to hear that you're re uh, receiving. I'm certain it's a very good presentation. But um, sometimes time is of the essence. If I suspect uh, fracture or uh, bone cancer, uh, sometimes having the studies done promptly is enormously significant. And um, uh, I can uh, tell them to go see their MD and, uh, and they might get in within a week and then there's another couple of days before they have the films done and then another day before they refer to send. And sometimes that kind of delay is life-threatening. And that's the best case. A lot of people don't have a medical doctor. And that's a higher percentage outside of the HRM than it is inside of it. So why to uh, discriminate against rural Nova Scotians when you know that this is effective in other places in the province is, is beyond my comprehension. For someone who doesn't have an MD to go to emerge and then wait to be x-rayed and the triage nurse is going to put them away at the end of the list because they're not what, necessarily suffering or anything, this is ludicrous. So I would like you to answer my question, which is, how come that's not happening? Too sweet. Well, I, I, can't, I can't say any more than it's happening. We're working with them to make sure that we have the, the rules in place and work through the association. And, we expect that in a very short period of time you will be able to order x-rays and, and I can't give you the exact date, but I know that we're actually working on it now. Long-term care for seniors was also brought up. Uh, I'm a past member of the Nova Scotia Seniors Advisory Council. And uh, we had a committee write um, up a report having to do with continuing care. I believe that the government's efforts so far in long-term care have, has to be applauded. But I think we can find efficiencies in funding and efficiencies in the betterment of the Nova Scotian seniors by having more and better continuing care, home care, I, I looked at a uh, report coming out from uh, Sweden. This particular individual was staying at home and there were six individuals coming to his home per day. Now we are lucky if we can get half an hour a week. We have to work on that. Thank you. So, so thank you. Um, thank you very much for raising that. Um, I, uh, I do want to let you know before I come into politics, I was the CEO of a long-term care facility. And so certainly continuing care is, is very close to my heart. So you're right, there has been some really good strides. We've increased the number of beds across the province and it's gonna take us a little while to do that. To your point, um, one of the things that, we're, that Nova Scotia Health is working on in, in the city initially, but we'll look at how it works, is transition to community. So rather than having only one option of going home or going to long-term care, these transition to, to care to community facilities will allow us to have um, rehabilitated folks in that um, facility, different than rehab, but really because folks often will deteriorate in hospital because they're not moving around and doing the things that they would normally do, they can decondition. So it's a reconditioning place so that people can get on their feet again and we can start to transition them home. So we recently had the opportunity to visit Denmark and look at their system. Uh, particularly strong support for seniors at age 65, whether you want or need it or not. You have someone phone you and they talk about your goals for the next year in order to prevent frailty. And they also do a loneliness assessment on you. So really understanding how you're connected to your community and making sure that people are connected. So. Um, Minister uh, Barb Adams is a physiotherapist and she's quite passionate about uh, seniors in long-term care and so thank you I'm gonna let her know that you spoke to us today and comments about those most at risk to contract COVID and their future um, I want to make an observation which is that three years ago when the uh, when the 
pandemic began, um, we didn't know what we were going to face in the next three years. And we don't know what it might have been like if it had been different, I guess. If I, it, so I, I want to say thank you um, for, I want to be grateful for the fact that we had one provincial leadership team in healthcare that was managing health, our health in and the pandemic at the beginning. I, I think it's possible if we were to have an imagination that we, we could envision that it might have had a different outcome if we had been nine health authorities or five, three or four uh, district uh, regional boards or whatever iteration of healthcare we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years. So um, I'm really grateful that we were led by one provincial team and now we're at a different phase in the pandemic. It's not over, but it's transitioning. And the question that I have for you as we transition into this next phase is, are you going to leave behind the individuals in this province who are immunocompromised? Because it, it feels as though we, we who have remained uninfected have become an inconvenience. And I'd like to know going forward because there uh, because you have combined uh operations with policy i feel it's appropriate to to bring that question forward and, and ask you to, to to what are you doing to protect the disabled but who are immunocompromised in this province at this stage in the pandemic when literally covid is everywhere i i'll i'll try and answer that to the best of my ability so um, I think what, what we've all learned as a result of the pandemic is infection prevention and control principles that perhaps uh, were not as mainstream. So um, in my work uh, as a registered nurse, as an example, um, if we had someone who was immunocompromised, perhaps I'll give the example of chemotherapy in hospital. Sometimes post chemotherapy, uh, white cells drop and people are very uh, at risk as an example of um, getting an infection and so as a result of that we would gown and mask when we went in to provide care or anybody visited in order to, pr to protect the patient. And so while there is also our ability to protect ourselves uh, through uh, the, variety, you know, the various uh, public health measures, um, we also know that we have to look at the risk of the people around us and use those principles um, you know, to the best of our ability in order to protect um, each other. So, Immunization for us is very, very key, making sure that um, immunization is widely available and that it's accessible to people. That's the first thing. Anybody, you know, that you have the immunizations that you require to protect you. Um, we do continue to, um, we, we aren't masked here today because you can't hear us when we have the, the uh, um, masks on and we've gotten feedback from people that they can't. So in small, in larger groups, if you feel that you're at risk, then you should definitely mask um, and use those principles that, that uh, we've been using all along. After the meeting, the leaders had to quickly get to Shelburne for the evening session. Here's Nova Scotia Health CEO, Karen Oldfield. Uh, you know, this is uh, getting later in the process, obviously, with these consultations with the public. Um, what do you take away from today? I, I think it's, um, so there's a lot to dissect from today. A lot to absorb and a lot to process, and I assure you, on the way home in the car, we will be doing all of that. But when you read between the lines, uh, you know, there, there is a, a divide in the community between, I'll say, vaccination and non-vaccination, that's clear. And, you know, I'm so, I'm very empathetic to uh, those who are on the outside looking in at this moment in time. And, you know, it's it's heartbreaking, really, to to hear that. Uh, and, you know, it may not be forever, but right now, today, this is where we are. And so that's one thing for sure. But the second thing is, um, I think part of it is in the way we speak as well. That, uh, you know, the last question, what are you doing for Yarmouth? Because so many things that we're talking about 
deal with Yarmouth. So for example, Yarmouth has a virtual emergency. It's one of three in the province. Yarmouth is getting the fixed wing. It's not to transport people to Halifax back all the time. It's when they really need to be there for tests or what have you, that we can make it happen much more quickly in a lot more comfort for the patient, but also uh, free up the, the uh, emergency resource for the community. So um, we are moving forward with the ER. I mean, I don't, I can't speak three years ago, I wasn't here, but obviously uh, some members of the community feel that, you know, this is taking too long. And so, you know, we hear that. And interestingly enough, um, as I participated in a meeting of health leaders yesterday, basically the premier's, the premier's message is go like hell. That's his message. And so, you know, that's the message I would share with the uh, community. We've been told to go like hell. We're trying really hard. And here are post-meeting comments from Health Minister Michelle Thompson. What do you take away from today's session here in Yarmouth? So every time we come to a community, we hear about concerns that are localized and very important to communities. So, you know, we heard a lot of concerns about the emergency room today. And, uh, you know, we wanted to share some of the things that we announced in Halifax around better uh, waiting room support uh, and also uh, support for clinicians. So not unusual uh, in terms of people's concerns around the emergency room and uh, certainly recruitment and retention we know is really tough down in uh, across the province, but we know Western Zone as well. So just working with communities um, to, to support and uh, re- um, recruitment efforts to make sure that you have the clinicians that you, that you need here. Liberal leader and Yarmouth MLA Zach Churchill was also in attendance and shared his thoughts. This is your community uh, coming out here today talking about health care. Uh, your thoughts on what was heard here today and, and what do you hope the province receives in the message here? Well, listen, there's obviously a lot of concern, particularly around our emergency departments right now and the uh, vacancies with staffing. So we're understaffed, we're particularly understaffed here in Yarmouth, and we, we don't know what the government is going to do to fill those staffing positions. Their answer to the ER crisis has been to create more positions, but with vacancy rates up towards 80%, I think that's going to be a very hard thing to do to fill new jobs that are coming into the system when so many are already vacant. And I want to ask you about their announcement today, uh, this morning, for some more supports uh, for ERs. Uh, what are your thoughts on the announcement today? We, we, we need more supports in our ERs, without question. Um, I was happy to see that they're talking about expanding the scope of practice further for pharmacists. That's something that we've been pushing for, for a year now, and that, that can help certainly, particularly in rural areas. Uh, my, my concern around the enhanced uh, positions at our ERs is how we're going to find the people to fill them. We've got vacancy rates upwards of 80% in some of our hospitals, so filling new jobs I think is going to be a real challenge when we can't fill the ones that we have currently in the system. The minister and healthcare leaders will take the information and make more considerations on changes to healthcare, which continues to be the number one issue Nova Scotians are talking about. For the latest on healthcare announcements and more, visit cjls.com and listen to Y95 News. And that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. For story suggestions or to submit feedback, email news.cjls at radioabl.ca or call our news line at 902-749-1919. To listen to archived versions of our program, visit us online at cjls.com and click on The Weekender. The Weekender is a production of the Y95 Newsroom and is brought to you by Eris Yarmouth, your one-stop healthy home center.